This week's episode of the Getting to Know podcast is brought to you by Women's History Month. Today and every day, we honor and celebrate our female employees. Hey, everybody. It's Mike Rickon. Thanks for joining us for another edition of the Getting to Know podcast. Today's a very special edition of the Getting to Know podcast because we're joined by the chair of our board of directors, Mr. Bill Cook. Bill, thanks for joining us today on the Getting to Know podcast. Well, thanks, Mike. It is a pleasure to to be here and to to, to share some of my thoughts on, on Nina and the board and, and our direction. We're excited to have you. And I, I, I'd love to start there, Bill. So, um, you know, of our couple thousand employees, only a small handful of us get to deal with the board on a regular basis. So help us demystify the, quote, board of directors. What What is the role of the board and then uh, specifically, what is the role that you play as the chair of the board? Okay, good question, Mike. Um, so the role of the board is to provide oversight on behalf of the shareholders on the operations of the company and to work with management in terms of direction, but but not to get involved in the details of running the company. That's that's management's job. I, my first board opportunity was a private company, a construction company. It was 25 years ago. And it actually really helped me in my development as an operating executive sort of understand where the line is between management and the board. And I've tried to apply that in my other, my all my board positions is trying to help but not get too involved. And that, that's the role of a board is to provide the governance and, and be a fiduciary on behalf of the shareholders, but not to run the company. That's management's job. Is that a tough line as a former operator? Well, I think actually as a former operator, it probably helps me because when I was CFO and then a CEO of of my company, um, I I got to appreciate why questions were being asked. And if if the question was over the line in terms of my perception, in terms of getting too involved, then I would ask like why they needed to know that or is there something I wasn't giving them that I needed to. Um, But then as as a director, I think it's helped me see that line to make sure I don't I don't, I don't cross over it. So you've walked on both sides of this. So you've, you've been a CEO of a public company. You've been a CFO of a public company and then a director. So you, you've had the opportunity to, 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 to walk on both sides, I guess. Right. And I think then to, to follow on, Mike, in terms of being the chair of a board. So I've chaired a couple different boards now and Nina for the last uh, so 18 months, I guess it, it's, you know, my goal there is to sort of help manage the communications between Julie as our CEO and the management team with the board and back and forth and also keep the board following to make sure that they're staying on that. They, 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 they're respectful of that line as well between what the board's responsibilities are and management's. So you mentioned you've been with us for 18 months as the chair. How long have you been involved with Nina on the board in general? So I came on the board in uh, summer of 2016, so a little over five years. It was a few months after I retired from my full-time job as CEO of Donaldson Company. Um, and, and what attracted me to Nina was the, the transformation that the company had was underway, had already been underway in the first, say, 12 years of its life, and then the future direction. So that, And I've been involved in transformation of businesses in the past, and I think that the fact that you know that not that it's easy. I don't don't want to minimize it, but that's an exciting time to be part of something like that, and hopefully be able to provide some some help. So on the board for five years and chair for about eighteen months. 
What would you say is the board's overall view of the transformation that's that that we're in the midst of, and 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 that is uh, going to be part of our journey here at Nina? You know, I have to correct myself, Mike. I think actually now it's been two and a half years that I've been. Is that right, Chair? So I'm trying to think of when Julie became CEO, and it was before that. Julie's a year and yeah, a year and a half in. So you're, that's probably right. I should, yeah. That's a whole COVID time. I sort of lost that year in there, I guess. So, but to, to your question about where the how the how the board is viewing the future and the strategic transformation, um, I think very positively. I think Julie and, and you and the rest of the team have laid out, you know, a very good case for why we can't stay where we are. Um, and and again, that's part of the history of the company. If you think back to two thousand four, when we owned all these timberlands in Canada and we had all the you know pulp. It's been a continual process, which I think Julie and, and the team have really ex- accelerated in terms of the, you know, the needs and the plans, uh, the need to do it and the plans for getting it done. And I think, you know, the last year and a half that Julie's been CEO, you know, it's been an especially challenging period. You know, we went right into COVID at the beginning of, you know, when she took over as CEO, when you joined us and, and Paul and had to deal with that. Um, we had to get through sort of the Appleton project and make a tough decision there. But on the positive side, we decided to get into a new market area, Silicon release with the purchase of Atasa. So I think the board is, well, the board is very supportive of the changes and very excited about the progress that we're making. There's a lot of work to do, a lot of heavy lifting, but we certainly appreciate the the support that we're getting from you as we work through this, you and the team. Going back to your Donaldson days, as CFO, as CEO, wh- what were the biggest challenges that you faced? What are the lessons learned around transformation and, and getting getting people to understand the need for change and pulling them along and, and, and living to tell about it, you know, better, stronger on the other side? Well, I think, you know, in any executive position that, that I've been in, I'm sure you appreciate this, Mike, is that, you know, people are all for change as long as it affects somebody else. Um and I, I think that's what I found, um, you know, and I, I, had, I had the benefit of some great uh, managers and mentors in my career that sort of helped me through that. It, you know, d- dealing with change sort of head on and then working through it, you know, as effectively as you can, rather than sort of postponing it or sort of kicking the can down the road um, is the best thing to do. And then I think related to that is really helping people understand the need for change. So back to my point, nobody likes change that affects affects them. And sometimes they're worried about changes that aren't even going to affect them. So a lot of it is around communication. Like, what does this mean? What's going to happen? And, and getting people sort of uh, accustomed or socialized to it helps get people through it. Uh, you know, the 2008-2009 recession was, you know, a very difficult period for all industrial companies. And I remember doing town hall after town hall, talking to people, um, just trying to get them to understand why we were doing what we, we were doing. Um, not that they had to like it, but I needed. The, you know, I was I, at best. I was hoping that at least they would understand it and support it because it was tough stuff that we had to do. So, for those in the listening audience who are really intrigued by the role of the board and would like to, you know, figure out how to get more involved, whether it's a nonprofit or something locally, um, how how do you, how do you get to where you are from from there? Um, what's, what's the path to, to being Bill Cook? Well, 
I'm not going to answer the Bill Cook question. I'll talk about demystifying the board. I, I don't think it's that, it should be that mysterious. I mean, everybody has opportunities to get involved in nonprofits. And my first board opportunities, uh, board positions were in nonprofits that I felt passionately about and, and, and where I was already volunteering or, or doing other things. And, and basically where they asked me if I would join as a board member. And I, I did that for a number of different nonprofits. I still do it for one. You know, and it, it, for me, being on a board is really about whether it's a nonprofit or a profit. It's about like going back to school. I, I told one of the first CEOs of a board that I was working for that he asked me after a year how it was going. And this was a paid director position. And I said, I said, I said, it's going great. In fact, I should probably be paying you to be on the board because it was like going back to business school. And I, I think the opportunity to interact with other people with different backgrounds, really smart people, management teams and directors, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit, that's what really gets me excited. Um, I always come away from a board meeting really, really charged and thinking about other stuff and then hopefully taking it back to other boards that, that I serve on, the other ideas. You know, sort of stealing shamelessly ideas from some smart people on one board and taking them to another board, as long as they're not confidential. Did you grow up as a young lad wanting to be a CEO or a CFO? Was that, was that always the dream? Uh, no, it wasn't, Mike. And uh, actually, this is sort of my plan B, as I sort of put it. So I grew up uh, wanting to be a commissioned officer in the armed forces. Um, I'm named for a grandfather that fought, fought in, for the, in France for the, in the army. Um, and so that from my father served, my uncles, my other grandfather, everybody was in the armed services. So my goal was to become a commissioned officer. I went to Virginia Tech because they had a, a program a residence program where you lived in the Corps of Cadets and you could take ROTC. So I did that. I started an Air Force, then Army, and then pursued a Navy. What I kept running into was a medical issue um, that each one of them found out. I didn't tell them. I was hoping I could slip through. So about halfway through my uh, my training, I realized I needed to have a plan B, and I switched my major to business. And uh, so that when I graduated, I didn't get a commission, but I was able to uh, get my bachelor's degree in, in a business, a double major. And then, uh, um, and I got a great opportunity to continue into graduate school at tech. Um, so it all worked out in the end. I mean, it, 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 I tell my friends that if I had been commissioned, I wouldn't have met my wife because I met her while I was in graduate school. So I would have, if I'd gone off to serve somewhere. So it all worked out for that reason. I, I do attribute a lot of the, the stuff I picked up or I've been able to do in my career to what I learned in my military training, you know, the leadership and maybe the focus on execution of results. Um, but, but it's, it's been, a, it's been a great ride and it all worked out well in the end. Yeah. Life takes twists and turns and everything seems to work out for a reason. Now I know you spent a lot of time in the upper Midwest with Donaldson, but you grew up in a very different place, right? Yeah. I was born in Texas where my dad was stationed in the air force and uh, we moved back to New York, to Long Island, where both my parents had grown up. And I spent like the next 16 years there until I left uh, at 18 to go to to go to tech. Um, so I left New York in, at 18, and then I lived in Virginia, uh, Michigan, Minnesota, Europe, back in Minnesota, and now Florida. Um, so I've been able to get around a little bit. So talk to me about those early days post-Blacksburg. You now have your degree. You're starting your career. Uh, what did you do and um, you know, what was that experience like? I graduated with my master's in 1976, and it was during a, a recession. Um, but I, 
through one of my uh, grad school buddies, I ha he had a connection at Ford where he had worked. And I sent a letter to Ford. I sent a lot of letters. I think I sent 150 letters. This is back before the internet, back in those days. And uh, personalized letters. And I got an interview at Ford in Detroit. And so I went up there to work in Ford Finance for four years, which was a great experience for me. But I, I really didn't like, I mean, I, I appreciated the experience. I didn't like working for a company where I couldn't really see the whole picture of what the company was doing. Um, and I was recruited by Donaldson, which, a company headquartered in Minneapolis in 1980. And Donaldson at that point was like $250 million. So a fraction, a tiny fraction of Ford. But there was an opportunity there to, you know, to, to see the dollars and cents. I mean, really to look at the whole business and the whole P&L. And I, I really, that's what I wanted to do was be able to, wasn't about the size of the business, it was being able to see all parts of the business that really appealed to me. So you shared some stories about, um, with me in the past, about your dad's advice as you were looking for, for, for jobs early on. I think he was very impressed by your first job, was he not? Well, I, I, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I'm the first one in my family to, to graduate from, from college. I'm the oldest of five. And my, my father, um, his dad died when he was young. He went in the Air Force and, and tried to go to night school while he was he and my mother were raising five kids. So I, I get a lot of maybe my um, dedication to hard work or, or that from that example. Um, you know, he's working two jobs and trying to raise a family and go to night school. He never graduated because he'd, he'd end up traveling and he'd have to drop out. So in 1976, when I got my... Uh, my master's, my MBA, I called my dad who desperately wanted me to move back to New York. And I said, well, you know, I got a great job offer from Ford in Detroit. And I told him how much it was. And, you know, these days it wouldn't seem like a lot, but back then it was a lot of money. And it might've been as much as my dad was making in his job. And I remember him saying to me, this long pause. And he said to me, if they want you to put license plate brackets on all day for that kind of money, you do that with a smile. So I think that that sort of rung has stayed with me, as you've heard it before, Mike, in terms of like, you know, make the best of every position that you have. Um, you know, life is what you, you make of it. And and so I think that that was his advice that uh, along with other advice he'd given me over the years that, you know, about being happy with what you're doing and finding the right opportunities, working with people that you respect and like. Um, but that was that was one of his classic lines that stuck with me. Sure. So, so you mentioned meeting your wife in Blacksburg. Um, when did the whole family scene start for you? How how early along in your career? So I, I was uh, I met her while I was in graduate school, and uh, she was an undergraduate in, majoring in accounting. And so we started dating, and then I was moving up to Detroit, and we decided, well, let's you know, basically, let's just let's get married, okay? Because um, she, she wanted to follow me up there. Um, and so she pursued her accounting career for the next six or seven years. She became a CPA and followed me. We moved together to Minneapolis in 1980. And then a couple of years later, we decided to, to start a family. We really wanted, we, we, we started with really nothing. So we wanted to build up something in terms of being able to buy a house and things like that, get our, our careers settled. So we uh, had our, our first child in 1983, a son, Andrew, and then our our daughter, four and a half years later, Sarah. Um, and then we have, so we have two children. We also have a, a niece, Caitlin, who lost both of her parents. And so we sort of adopted her. She's a, so the, so we have three that we, we claim right now and, and five grandkids. 
and you spend a lot of time driving around, flying around, chasing around those those grandkids, right? Yeah, we were in uh, North Carolina last week, and I mean, it's we don't get to see. We have three in North Carolina and two in Ohio, so we do travel a lot to see them. We have been traveling during COVID when we can um, to see them, and yeah, it's it, it's sort of special when you can be there and and drive them to school because we don't get the opportunity to do that as regularly as some of our friends do. So you've got a couple boards. You're, you're retired full-time, but you've got a couple boards, full-time grandfather when when you can, can, can get out of town. What do you guys do for fun when it's just the two of you? You know, pre-COVID, we did a lot of travel, both around the family, but then also for fun. We were going to Italy typically, you know, every year at least once and other trips uh, both domestically and internationally for fun. You know, COVID, we haven't done an international trip now in, in two years or a year and a half. Right before COVID, we did one. Um, my wife is getting ready to go to Europe in a couple of weeks. Um, so we're hoping that we're sort of, you know, walking before we run, that we can get back into that. Um, we do, we cycle a lot, you know, where we're here, especially in Florida. That became probably more of a passion during COVID because you can't, you know, for a while we couldn't do, go anywhere. So we were cycling every day, which we both enjoy. Um, so that's, you know, probably the biggest passion has, has been is travel. And we're hoping to get back on that. We're, we're traveling the next couple of weeks domestically, uh, which will be, which will be fun. What's your favorite vacation spot? Just you and your bride? I would say Northern Italy. I mean, we, we typically try and pick a different spot every time um, to go to. And we've traveled all over Italy and how many trips we've made. But if I was going to pick one spot that I would go back to or I highly recommend, it would be northern northern Italy. We have some really good friends there. Um, we're, now we're getting invited to weddings and things like that in Italy. Um, I'm not Italian, but you know I can sort of wave my arms like one sometimes, I guess. But, <laughs> but we really we really enjoy the culture and the people there. Are those people that you met on trips over there, or people that you knew? yeah through, through friends, right? And so they've come over and visited us, and it's just. It's one of those things that sort of builds up over time. That, that's the part that we really miss is not being able to see our international friends like we could before COVID. We really want to get back to that. Yeah. Are you starting to see some kind of change in your in your personal life over the last 18 months since, you know, we've been through this whole COVID, you know, COVID debacle? And um, are, are you starting to see some sense of normalcy come back? Yeah, I think so. Slowly, I mean, it's it's uh, it's specific to every person. I have family members that are still very cautious. I mean, we are too. I and mean, we, you know, I I get tested, do a PCR test every time I return, and you know, try and mask and do all the right the right things. I got my booster two days ago, so I'm just got over that yesterday. Um, but trying to, you know, do the best that we can so that we can get back to some some more normal life. I'm really looking forward to the in person meeting that we're having. You know, later this month, as you know, Mike, um, you know, I've been coming to the board meetings, but we don't haven't had the whole board or the whole management team together. So it's going to be neat to be able to do that. For sure. It's a it's a it's a very different dynamic with without that. And, you know, just one of one of many um, struggles and, you know, probably first world problems in the big picture. But um, but 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 certainly changes the, the dynamic. Uh, the other boards that you've sat on, uh, either currently or in the past, what, what have you seen from, from their experiences as, as we've worked through COVID? Have, have you, have, have, are there, have there been lessons learned, things you would do differently, things that you would, um, 
that you know that, that that you would amplify to to us to do differently. You know, I I think everybody, at least from my experience with my other two companies, is is doing very similar things, and I, I think a lot of that is the sharing that goes back and forth. And we have like we have directors on our board that are working executives, and they share ideas. I've shared ideas with you know with 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 Julie, connected Julie with the other two CEOs that I work with. I think I, th- I think the nice thing about it is it's opened the door to communications that might not have taken place otherwise is because it's not really a competitive threat to talk about what are you doing and, and sharing ideas. So I, I think from that perspective, I think Dean has done a, a very good job um, with it in terms of managing uh, through through this pandemic. Um, and I'm uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm proud of the fact that we're that we're coming through it now, given the you know the challenges that. You know, Julie had in terms of you know dealing first with COVID and building a management team, and then you know Appleton and other business issues. I think we're the you know the sun's coming out, and I'm looking forward to 2022. What are you most excited about for Nina that's coming forward? You know, I think the the strategy that you and Julie and the rest of the team have developed, and, and the, obviously the board's been involved in the review. Um, I, I really points a way to you know sustain growth over time. The combination of organic growth with a lot of the projects that we have going on in our current businesses, and then through M and A, and the acquisition of Atasa with the, the silicone re- release liner, really gives us a whole nother area to get into. And so I think pursuing that combination of organic and M and A or inorganic growth, I think is very exciting. We have the capability to do it. And we see the opportunities to do it, to remake the company. And so it's, I see this sort of the next chapter in Nina versus what's happened in the first, say, 15 or 17 years in terms of what we do over the next five years plus with Nina. I think we can make it into a, you know, an incredible company, um, a growing company along the way. You mentioned that Donaldson was, what, $250 million in revenue when, when you joined? Is that right? Right. So that's a that's a great um great experience what a great run because you're you know what you're you're upwards of what four four billion or so in revenue now well revenue is about two and a half or 2.8 billion now right less a little bit less than three billion yep okay so you're so you're a little less than three billion at donaldson now up from 250 million what a what an incredible ride so what what would you say you gleaned from being part of such a such a huge growth story and experience. You know, I think it, a couple of things, Mike. So, you know, I, I hired into Donaldson and this strategy was already underway to diversify the company. So there were some similarities I mentioned before between the challenges that Nina is facing with the fine paper business and sort of the, you know, very profitable, not, but not growing like we needed to just because of the cyclicality of it. And Donaldson, which had uh, a big part of the company was sort of in the same position. And what Donaldson started to do and was say, okay, wh- where can we take our capabilities and technologies into other areas that are growing faster, right? Where we have something to play. Does it sounds familiar, right? That's the Nina story it too, does. right? It and does. so like find those opportunities where we can, we have an edge that we can play and differentiate and be part of something that's growing faster than what we have. Not to dismiss what we have because you need that. You know, that you need the fine paper business to fund that. And it's a good business. So I don't mean to, to, to mean anything else, but you, in terms of growing the company, you've got to have that balance. And Donaldson did that 
And we did it on a couple, on three dimensions. We wanted to get into non-diesel engine related businesses. We wanted to get into replacement parts and we wanted to grow internationally. And so again, as I was looking, as, when I was asked to consider joining Nina, there were a lot of similarities in terms of what Donaldson had done and was still doing, because that story isn't over yet. You know, it's, it's what we're talking about is a race without an end. We're never going to say it, Nina, we're done, right? So I think, but it, that, that was what intrigued me. It wasn't like coming to a company that had it all figured out. I wanted to be part of where an, op- you know, an opportunity where we could try and figure it out together. Were you met with a great deal of resistance as you began that transformation from, from employees, from certain leaders? You know, I, I think, well, yes, to some extent. I mean, there, again, this gets back to what we talked about with change. You know, some people, you know, didn't want to change and, it, and, and I, I'm not going to minimize that there weren't some tough decisions along the way in terms of operations that we had to sell or, or shut down. Um, but that's, you know, but we needed to do that to invest in the in the growing areas. Um, but we tried to do it with a, you know, you know, in, in a responsible way with the employees and offering people opportunities where we could to get involved in something else. But in some cases, people decided that wasn't for them. And so they, they made other decisions. I think in the end, you know, was the people that are there are, are thankful that we that those things were done along the way. I mean, they did it. They were part of it. Um, but I think. Um, so it was it was hard. It required sort of patience and persistence at the same time to get through those with with a steady view of what the long term objectives were and trying to, again, communicate to people why we were doing what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's I, I think I think Julie would say this, too. I think we've um, I think we've established that, you know, the transformation of the organization is important. We need to do a better job with the repetition and helping people understand why and and how we're going to go about doing that. And I think that's probably a fair, fairly normal component of driving a transformation. Would, would, would you say your experience aligns with that? Yeah, I, I think, and I, I'll be honest with you, Mike, I think in my early days, I underestimated how important the communications is. You know, like you think, well, I, we talked about that, you know, last quarter at the town hall meeting, right? And, and but, you know, you and I are living those discussions every day. And, and the, the average employee is just, they're doing their job as they're supposed to. They lose sight of that. And then, you know, one of my bosses said to me, like, if you don't fill in that bubble above somebody's head with what you want, what the message is, that somebody else is going to fill that in for them. And I think that's what, what I found is that it's hard to over-communicate when you're going through change. I, I, it might be impossible to over-communicate. Um, you, know, you, you know, there's some stuff you, you have to be careful what's appropriate to communicate if it's confidential or things like that. But in terms of just trying to make sure people understand, you know, the direction and what's happening and how it might impact their business or themselves, I think it's that's really critical. Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, the best strategy in the world uh, still needs to be brought to life by by your people. And um, so it doesn't matter how great the strategy is. You're not going to do the people quote agenda on Wednesday afternoon. We've got to we've got to make sure that we're you know, communicating and helping people understand the why and the how, as, as you said. For sure. What would be the lesson as you as you've gone through transformation? And, and like you said, there's no finish line, but uh, you're now on the other side. You're officially retired. So I think that uh, that counts as being on the other side. Um, what would you say the single biggest lesson was from your experience? 
you know, I think, uh, you know, we've touched on some of it already, Mike, but I think the clarity of like where you want to go, what's the goal. Okay. And then, and just keeping that, um, you know, in focus and not to get diverted or sidetracked, um, you know, unnecessarily, but just to try and keep that focus, obviously get input along the way. You might have to make course corrections, but, um, but sort of maybe a dedication to that focus that we we boil it down to a, you know, a couple of very simple metrics at Donaldson company that this is where we wanted to go. And, and, and I would say part of them, they were, you know, my board at the time asked me, were these aspirational or are they real? And it's like, well, they were a combination of both. I you know, wanted to set sort of stretch goals in terms of what, it, what we wanted the company to look like. Um, and I knew that we, you know, we might get lucky and might get there exactly, but you're not going to get there exactly. But if you said you wanted 50% of your business to be outside of North America in five years and you got to 48, I said, I don't think anybody's going to be upset, you know, if you started at 25. But it was to try and set those out there. And that helped with the communications with my fellow employees in terms of saying, this is, this is where we're headed. This is why we're making those investments in Europe or Asia. Um, it's all part of this strategy. Um, and, you know, not to take away from what we have in the U.S. or North North. Uh, you know, North America, but, but we have, but the growth opportunities are higher there. And so that it all supports that strategy. So just regularly tying it together. And I did it in all of our investor presentations, the same type of thing, just keeping it, you know, keeping it out there. I, you know, one example of that was one of our biggest shareholders was uh, Newberger Berman in New York. And I would go out there and do on a regular basis our you know, update them, you know, present our investor relations deck and, you know, they pull about 25 people into a conference room and they're all firing questions off at you. And the portfolio manager at the end said, I, his name is Bob. I said, well, how did, how did it go, Bob? And he said, well, it was boring. So I said, the presentation or me? He said both. <laughs> <laughs> but we like boring because <laughs> boring, they wanted the consistency of the message because it was the same thing they had heard the year before and five years before updated for the progress but just the consistency of the message for a shareholder or for an employee and, and, you know, whether an employee was in the Czech Republic or China, that they could identify with that. That's that, that was the lesson that I learned. And I wish I had learned it earlier because it would have made some of the other changes I made earlier in my career, um, you know, uh, easier and probably more effective. Any advice that you would give to our employees as we em embark on this journey? You know, I would just, I, mean, I, I, I would just encourage people to, you know, ask questions of their, you know, their, their supervisor or the management, I mean, to, to try and get engaged. If, if they don't understand something, then I, I would be concerned that maybe it's, it's not helping them do their job as effectively as they, they could, or that they're worrying about something they don't need to. So trying to just clear the air out of, you know, questions in terms of why or how is this going to affect me, I, I think... You know, I, th I think all of that can help. Not everybody might not, they might not all like the answers. I mean, I, I don't like the answers sometimes that I get when I ask questions, but I think the key is, is that at least I understand, you know, I understand more about what's going on and that helps me. Great. Great. That's, that's, that's great counsel. So Bill, at the end of every getting to know podcast, we hit our our uh, guests with three specific questions. I'm going to hit you with those, but first I wanted to uh, congratulate you on 
being named the director of the year by NACD. What a cool honor. It's got to be uh it's got to be a, a spot on on your mantle down there in Florida for that award now. Thank you. That's yeah, very cool. My fellow directors at IDEX, where I've served for 13 years, unbeknownst to me, uh, nominated me for the board. And, and I'm very humbled and honored to have been selected by NACD for the Director of the Year Award. That's great. That's great. It's great to have you helping, uh, helping guide the ship for us. And, and uh, it's a really, really cool award. I'm, you should be honored. So at the end of every Getting to Know podcast, we hit the... Uh, the, the guests with these three specific questions, you know them because I know you're a regular listener to the Getting to Know podcast. So I'm going to hit you with those right now, Bill Cook. First one is, what can always at all times be found in the Cook family refrigerator, regardless of which refrigerator, whether it's, you know, in Michigan, Virginia, Florida, Minnesota, what's in there? Hot sauce. Hot sauce. I am a connoisseur of hot sauce. It, it actually... It's gotten a little bit out of hand the last five years because it's sort of the go-to gift for my, my kids. So I've got quite a selection of hot sauces, probably enough inventory to last me for the next 10 years. So I'm trying to get them to dial that down. So you'll always find hot sauce. It, at least in the greater Atlanta area, there's a, a um, sub chain, su- like submarine sandwich chain called Firehouse Subs. And you walk in, it's just a table full of various hot sauces. I'm, I'm picturing that as a counter in your kitchen right now is that kind of thing yes okay yeah all right great <laughs> amongst those bill who know you well what would you say you're most famous for i would say uh probably a combination of being uh, very detail oriented and maybe at times maybe a little bit too intense so i i was thinking about when i was working at donaldson maybe 10 or 15 years ago i would I would wake up at four o'clock in the morning and think of something. I'd send somebody an email and it got to be a little bit of a, a, a joke. Is that the right word a, a, about me where people would start leaving cartoons about this? I mean, like, you know, and so I, one of the things I learned was, well, you could schedule your emails to go out. <laughs> so then I would start scheduling them to go out like at six o'clock Monday morning. I, I wasn't expecting an answer if I sent it out at Port on Saturday morning. I just wanted to get off out of my head onto somebody else. So I, then I started scheduling my emails, which created a whole different set of complaints because people would come in in the morning and they'd have like eight emails. So um, so I, I try and figure out as I've gotten older is to, to, is to make sure that I'm respectful of other people's family time, which is made even worse during COVID, right? Because everybody's, it's like this 24 seven environment at times. Um, and so I'll wait now, whether I schedule or not, and say, so I'll, I'll just go ahead and do that on Monday. I'm not going to and I write, write myself a note rather than sending an email or put it in drafts and then just remember to send it. So that would be detail oriented and maybe at times a little too intense. Do you attribute that to all the military in your background or growing up as a finance guy or just how you're wired? I, I think it's probably a combination of those, Mike. You know, I'm a, you know, I, I'm an operations guy. I'm mean, a finance guy in operation. I was a plant manager, and I've been involved in different operations. I just there's something about, I, I you know, like sort of a, maybe a level of curiosity that I have in terms of how things work, and and at times, you know, I have to be get back to our conversation about board responsibilities. 
making sure that I'm not, that I sort of filter those questions, so to speak, that I'm not asking an operational question rather than a board type question. But I think it's a wiring thing with me. I, I'm just curious. I want to know how things work. Makes sense. All right, Bill, last question for you. What would you say you are most looking forward to right this very moment? I would say, you know, back to, we touched on this is the ability to get together again in groups, you know, whether that's like in our board meeting coming up in a couple of weeks, I've got one in Chicago in a couple of weeks, I've got one in Philly in December, just the ability to get people together. And then from a family perspective, you know, we have been getting together, but being able to do that more regularly, I just booked a a week for my family uh, the week after Christmas. And I just so looking forward to stuff like that, where we'll still take the precautions, but we can, you know, we can be together more because it was, there were long stretches when we couldn't do that. And that's what I'm most looking forward to right now. Some sense of normalcy. Absolutely understand. It's a very common answer, some version of that on the getting to know podcast, as you, as you might imagine, I think, you know, a lot of people are longing for the same thing. So Bill, I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy, despite the retirement, sitting on all these boards, winning all these awards as director of the year. We appreciate you taking time and um, thank you for your support and guidance and leadership of the board and and, and partnership with the management team uh, and Nina. We we certainly appreciate all the things that you're doing to help drive uh, drive our growth ambition and and taking time out of your schedule today to join us on the Getting to Know podcast, the multimedia version of the Getting to Know podcast. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure doing this. And I just want to commend you again for you and your team doing this. I think this has really helped during COVID, these podcasts, and I'll listen to them in the car and getting to know people that I haven't even met at Nina yet because of COVID or getting to know more about some of the people that I have met. So I think it's it's a great way back to my point about communications of getting people more connected and uh, especially during COVID, but I hope you keep it up when we come out of this as well. I appreciate that. It's been, it's been great for us as well. And, and we've got a lot of feedback and, 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 you know, adjust accordingly, but I appreciate your perspective on that and, and all the support. Good. Well, thank you. For those of you in the listening audience or viewing audience today, uh, thank you for your time. I hope you've enjoyed getting to know Bill a little bit. And uh, again, Bill, congratulations on uh, the director of the year award. And we'll talk to you all again in two more weeks. Thanks, Mike. See you soon. <laughs>